You're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. It's Katie, BuildUp's Manager of Global Operations. This week on the Nonprofit BuildUp, Nick is continuing the conversation with Deanna Hoskins, President and CEO of Just Leadership USA, also known as JLUSA. You can jump back to part one of our conversation to learn more about Deanna's expertise, passion, and major accomplishments, and JLUSA's work. But with that, let's dive into the second part of Nick's conversation with Deanna that we want to find ourselves in as, as mm-hmm. grantees. So, and I really like when you were saying, you know, stop focusing on activities and start focusing on the mission. Like you're investing in this organization and you use that word invest. And I think it's really important because that's what it is. Like, are you investing in this organization's vision and mission? Because mm-hmm. if so, you show up a, a very different way. Different way. Right. It's about this partnership that you have, this relationship that you're building. That's when you're investing. When you're Mm -hmm. funding something, you you show up that way. Like, what is the deliverable? Did you get it done? No, then you better get it done. How many people did you serve? Exactly. You know, there's this one practice that I'm starting to see, and I've been really sharing with organization leaders who are founding organizations where philanth not, I don't even want to call them philanthropy, billionaires are wanting to invest, dropping a million dollars, right? Which is nothing to this billionaire. It's a B. He's dropping an M, right? But I'm going to invest this $1 million a year for the next five years in your organization. Well, you're a grassroots. You've barely been able to operate off of $100,000. And here's this person committing a million for the next five. But there's one caveat. I'm going to put somebody from my organization on your board. And I've been sharing, I was like capitalists watch their money. People who want to make a profit watch their money. That is not a donation. That is how do I benefit from this contribution into this organization that I can build off of? And an example is a housing program where it happened. And now what we're seeing is that billionaire is now convinced them you should expand across the country. And matter of fact, when you expand across the country, I'm about a houses that you're going to live in and you'll just pay my company rent. He got his million dollars back and more. He ain't gave you nothing. He just got his million because it's a real estate investment for him now. And that was the plan to see what is the strategy? What is the concept? How can I capitalize and multiply off of this million dollar investment that I'm calling it? But I'm going to watch my money because I need to see where the opportunity lies for me, not the opportunity for the organization. And so I'm watching them build brand new constructive housing, calling them safe housing. But the landlord is the billionaire's company that the organization has to pay rent to. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's like it's bringing up for me and I see it a lot. Just inappropriate tools. Yeah. Inappropriate tools and saying, but we're giving it in the sort of space of philanthropy, but we're trying a different approach, right? So you'll hear different things. This is an innovative approach. This is a different approach. You know, it's not the status quo, whatever it is, but acknowledging like this is a completely different tool. And then 
just not also acknowledging it's also the wrong tool or it may be mm-hmm. the wrong tool, right, to actually get at where we're going. So I think just flagging it is is just so it's critical. Yeah, because I always oh. say would the donation, would I have preferred the million dollars or would I have preferred you say, I, will, I would like to ask somebody on your board to help look at your concept so that we can help you grow and we'll build the houses and donate them to you. Now, that's the real investment in our mission and belief in our system, not I'm going to build the houses so that I can benefit as the developer and the owner of that property to multiply right. my portfolio. Right. Because I think like you can be innovative in this space and we're not mm-hmm. saying that you can. You can bring in a different tool. And I definitely encourage that because I think yeah. the way that we are working, it can be concerning and it's it's clunky, right? So mm-hmm. we're not saying that we shouldn't be innovative. It's about, again, stepping in with that cultural competence, the ability to listen, understand where you're stepping into, what you're actually trying to do and having that dialogue and saying, this is what we're trying to get to. Where are you trying to go? Seeing where it matches and then finding a way to implement that tool, right? Yeah. And so- and Dan, if we look at it the other way, talked a lot about grant makers and funders and what they should be doing more of, less of. What about grantees? What about nonprofit organizations that are recipients of, of the funding? What should they be doing less of and what should they be doing more of? So I think as grantees, we should be doing more education to ourselves of how this process works. We should be doing more research around prior movements. I always say, if you don't know your history, you're subject to repeat the history, right? So one of the things that we're seeing in the movement around formerly incarcerated, the movement around liberation is if you make too much noise, I always say if somebody's making noise and they go quiet, just look at, did they get large donations? And typically in the past movements, but understanding that the donations come with something, how do we stand in that era that we're still going to keep our voice? You're not buying my voice. You're not buying my silence. Same things are still going on. Love Black Lives Matter, but I'm like, nothing has changed, but I haven't heard from you all. Nothing has changed, but I haven't heard from you in this moment. And and I do believe they're doing some work. I believe they're strategizing. But also, we as a country haven't heard from you. You you got everybody excited, and now you kind of went radio silence on us, right? But how do we keep that momentum of when we raise it, we get raised to a conscious level, we get investments, how do we keep going and not say, oh, I'm well-financed right now or different things. How do we keep that momentum going? So stand vigilant and stand true and stand authentic to why we were even created and why we did it. We have to stand in that and be bold about it. I think we also, what I would love to see grantees do is understand the process of growing and not just get comfortable with whatever they get. That if you truly believe in your mission of your organization and it's going to impact people, how do we continue to grow? The worst thing I I hate is when grassroots organizations come up doing really good work, connecting with the community, changing people's lives in the community, then all of a sudden they disappear or they get swallowed up by the big nonprofits who see, oh, this work is going really well. We want to take it over. We want to exploit it. And then funders stop funding the grassroots because they don't have the capacity to serve more and the larger nonprofits do. And then what traditionally happens 
the larger nonprofit don't have the real touch to proximity in the community that the grassroots have. So stopping allowing funders or allowing our organizations to be controlled by the dollar. I know we need them to operate, but it can't be controlled. And we have to be able to get the courage to say, we're not going to do that, or we're not going to take that. You don't get to treat us this way. You don't get to co-opt us. So sticking together. What I wish they would do more of is collaboration. Everyone, it's enough funds out here for everyone. It's enough people to serve, enough communities to address. But we have to be collaborative and not in competition. And I actually think funders keep us in competition with limited funds, but that's also being limited to the pool of funding that's funding your topic. So understanding collaboration allows for knowledge sharing of where other funds are. I always like to use the analogy, it's a shame to go to an amusement park and only ride the roller coaster because that's all you know. You miss the true enjoyment of the whole amusement park and that's how the funding world is. We get on one roller coaster, everybody's in line to get on that roller coaster. We're in competition to get on the roller coaster when there's a myriad of other funding But because we've limited ourselves to say I'm criminal justice reform and not understanding that criminal justice is a symptom of the racial disparities. So, no, I'm not focused on criminal justice reform. I'm focused on racial disparities and eradicating the racism within the systems that are filtering into the criminal justice system. I just opened up my pool of funding to much more of the amusement part than everybody else who stand on the roller coaster. Yeah, I, I I really like that you're focusing in on collaboration because I would say from where I sit, like that's needed a lot more. And I do agree that it's hard sometimes to collaborate in a system that is not set up to be right. collaborative, even though we say that it is. So I understand the challenges, but I agree. I think that collaboration would it would magnify so much impact within communities that actually really need it. I think it goes back to that old saying, there's power in numbers. Mm -hmm. And if you built the power through the collaboration and understanding that we're really not in competition, and I always try to tell people, collaborating broadens the pot. It may seem like we're in competition for the funding, but in a collaborative mode, we have access to more and we can demand more. Because right now, even the policy changes, the fundings we're asking for, are crimes. It's just so bare minimum. It is so bare minimum, Nick, that I sit back some days and I'm like, you know, I used to work at the post office years ago and I'm like, you know, processing mail was not that bad. When I think about my great, great, great grandkids probably are still going to be fighting this fight because we're asking for crimes. One, because we don't know our history. So everybody's recreating the wheel. And it's like, dude, we're so past that. How do we take what has already been done by our forefathers, the people's shoulders we stand on? When people, we talk about standing on the shoulders of other advocates, they did some work. How do we take the work they've done and build upon instead of trying to always start from scratch? We're always building a new wheel. And I'm like, there were some pieces of that wheel we could have brought with us that would have had us way ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask a Big follow-up question, Deanna, because when you started to explain that point, it made me think about, huh, okay, so let's say I am 
a leader of a grassroots organization. I'm, I'm sitting, I'm a part of a group of other nonprofit leaders. We just talked about collaboration. We just talked about, look, we are getting just small amounts of money compared to the kind of change that we want to have and want to make sure that we're supporting. What do we do next? Like, what does that next step look like? If we are, we're operating the way we are, we just describe that, but we know where we want to go. We know the kind of change you want to see within the sector as well. What do we do next? So thank you for that, because this is a conversation that I'm having with some real communities right now, and it's around reentry employment. And the conversation is organizations are doing great work around this. We get minimum dollars. And that's because a lot of the organizations, the smaller ones don't know how to advocate for the federal allocations that are coming into their state of how it should be dispersed in their communities. But the larger nonprofits know that's why they're getting all the money, right? And they know how to advocate. So bringing that collaborative effort together, one, gives us the opportunity to be educated and build power that we now become a force that actually can advocate on our state level of how those federal dollars are coming into our state and how they're allocated amongst our community and how the larger nonprofits that's been swallowing it up don't really have access and proximity to the people you're trying to serve. But as a collaborative, we do, right? And so how does the collaborative put in that grant application? But also when you build those collaboratives, you build power. You now become a voice in that community that can talk to your elected officials that are speaking for your community. You're you're advocating for the people most marginalized to actually bring them to the forefront to speak again, which is why it goes back to the original question, having people who are directly impacted to be a part of that conversation of how money comes into our communities. So you now have become a force up against that one nonprofit who's been, and typically it's one to two nonprofits in every jurisdiction that has monopolized the funding federal funding that comes into the state. It is so much money that comes into states from federal government around workforce, labor force, workforce investment boards, job trainings, housing. People haven't even tapped into the DOT, but the huge nonprofits that do reentry employment, they know DOT. So if they're building infrastructure, new roads, new sewer in your area, those are federal DOT dollars. And actually, your section three in your area with HUD states that any federal dollars that come into your jurisdiction has to have a 35% workforce from the most marginalized communities. But because we don't know that, or we haven't built the collaborative to even hold the county government accountable and how these contracts come out, our people are missing the boat on opportunities of economic mobility. That's really powerful because it makes me think of this sort of cooperative model that could exist within the nonprofit sector, right? So formalizing that collaboration and being really clear about these are the organizations that we are formally collaborating with. And when you think about the ecosystem, it's like, you know, all the different players, but how do we actually collaborate together? What does that look like? And just being stepping forward with a more cooperative type of bend. And that's what it makes me think about. And I've been thinking, it's funny because, you know, I use analogies for everything. So I had created this concept of checkers, backgammon, and chess. And checkers is the real quick game, right? It's the real, you move your pieces really quick. Backgammon, you have to line everything up. And then chess is a strategy move. You move on strategy, you do it. 
So if you're thinking about building collaborations and coalitions, what is the checkers game that gets everybody into the room? And that's the education about the funding. That's the education about opportunities that lie within their jurisdiction. So using the funding opportunity and education as the carrot to get them in the room. And now once they're in the room and you're talking about this funding, you're moving to backgammon to how do we align to advocate at our state level that this funding needs to come in. But we advocate and align as a collective that we show power. And then within that, are there federal legislation rules around reauthorization definitions that need to change so that our communities are more inclusive and intentionally defined as recipients of this funding? I'll use an example, dislocated worker. Jurisdictions classify dislocated worker the way they want to. My argument, every person in prison is actually working at the prison, right? You work, most people, especially if you served a long amount of time, you might work in a break shop, you may work on a yard, you may work in the kitchen, you may work in laundry. When you get discharged from prison, you no longer have that income coming in. You have to find new income. You are really a dislocated worker that can utilize the training and opportunities through the Workforce Investment Act funds that come into your state, but strategically those localities do not define that or define those individuals as qualifying. You have to have been laid off from your job in the public sector some type of way. Department of Corrections are public sectors. They released me. I was laid off. I need to be able to have access. Same thing with housing. Obama administration defined the definition of homelessness as leaving an overcrowded facility, jail and prison all day. Jurisdictions have the discretion They say, no, that just means shelters. That doesn't mean prison, which means a person doesn't qualify for those housing subsidies. And who's more in need of those housing subsidies for sustainability and self-sufficient than a person being recently released from incarceration? Yeah. And and, and it's that kind of information sharing, knowledge sharing that unless you were in this kind of collaborative structure, likely wouldn't have access to it because you're in your own vacuum doing your own thing. So just a reminder, right, to have those conversations and be deliberate about it because you're all working towards this common goal. And lots of folks in that ecosystem know lots more than you do. So back to this point, right? Um, The space is being culturally competent, understanding that you're not, don't go in there thinking you're the smartest person in the room because the possibilities that come back from that, right? And I think it's very important to just, you know, we, we throw this word around in community together. And I'd be like, we are not in the community because we don't even know what's growing in the community. We don't even know what's all accessible in the community. So being in community is totally different than being in collaboration with each other. Yeah. yeah. And I think that just when we think about somebody might say, well, what comes next? What could I do? We've said it, right? Like, so if you're listening to this, the next thing you should think about is who do I work closely with? What organizations are in our space or our, our area that we're working in? Who's working alongside the same kind, the same communities that we're working alongside? And it may not be in the same area, but again, shared goals and taking that approach and saying, let's have a conversation. What does collaboration look like? What does this cooperative model look like? I think is a really good start for for folks. And it's just having that collaboration to build the power. But then, like you said, Nick, the various sectors, those become subcommittees off of the collaboration. There's a housing committee. There's a substance abuse committee. There's a direct service provide. You know, everybody has a subcommittee. So even when funding opportunities come, the collaboration say, 
who is the best person to, ha- to actually go after this funding? Is it the housing committee because it's around housing? And then who's the most stable organization that can actually be the main grantor, but everybody else in the committee is a sub grantor on a grant. Now the money has been expanded because the huge nonprofit who has the capabilities of a federal grant and the mechanism can make you a sub grantee to access funds you never had access to. And in that same structure, you are building on your strengths, your safeguarding for your challenge areas within your organization, because now there's a group of organizations working together. Um, and you're growing in your knowledge base. Yes. How to expand and sustain your organization. Mm-hmm. You're learning. And so we're talking about that kind of structure, right? And that kind of collaboration. It makes me think about infrastructure. And so How do you think about infrastructure at Just Leadership when we're talking about this kind of cooperative structure as well? And when I say infrastructure, I mean boards, governance. How are we building out that structure? How are we looking at receiving grant awards? What does that entire process look like? If you're making grants, then, you know, how are you making sure that that grant making is reflective of your organizational values and you know just how you are set up in terms of your team as well do they understand their roles and responsibilities and so i'd love to hear how you all are thinking about infrastructure that kind of emphasis that you put on it if at all and what would be required when we're talking about this collaborative approach with nonprofits so i think and i, I want to thank you for that i want to start with the board cuz i think People think, okay, this is the board that I started with. It's the founding board. But I think boards have to be adjusted based on the growth of the organization and the stage where the organization is. So I just literally created a document around how I think about a board of how do you reset a board? How do you renew a board? And then how do you reinvigorate a board, right? So coming into the organization, I came on the foot the foundation of a founder, which was a founding board. A founding board has very different purposes than a actual operational board. Typically, your founding board is really helping you get the prestige and the acknowledgement you need, introducing you to people, helping you get some funding, secure funding. And it's less about governance at that time. Well, then you move into this growth spurt. You you got the funding, you got these protocols, you now, you're hiring staff, you went from this one person with a vision, now you have staff, you got benefits, you got HR rules, you got, how do I keep accountable of the actual funding that I'm getting? What is the finances of the organization? So it's time to revisit the board structure because does that founding board have the expertise that I need for this growth spurt? Do I need to change my bylaws to expand my board? Because at the time, I just thought I needed the three members to get me incorporated, right? So do I need to expand my board? And when I expand my board, am I being deliberate around diversity, equity, and inclusion of who's on my board, who's represented, what sectors are represented, what expertise is needed on my board to help me? But then that also goes down into the capacity of my organization and my team. And what you'll see, what I've seen, my experience is all I can share. The team I needed that when it was a founding organization and the, the founder or the president is out doing all the speaking, doing all the fundraising, I've now grown. I need a development, chief development officer, right? Uh, now we're bringing in this funding. I need a CFO to handle that. Who's my third party financial management? Who's handling HR to make sure I'm in compliance? So now 
I'm relying on not only the expertise in-house, but some contracting with experts outside who do this as well. But it's being cognizant of my growth spurt and being deliberate. And I'm no longer able to function on a quick QuickBook spreadsheet, right? We have grown, but understanding and knowing when I've reached that capacity, but also is my board accountable for their responsibility of fiscal health and governance of this organization? Um, making sure I'm being deliberate around board development. So some of my board members who may not be really versed in that actually have access to the board development to understand it, but also putting some seasoned people on my board who understands it as well so that it actually can mature and you're having a fully functioned board. I think people look at one part of their organization and not realizing you have to look at it, especially as the president CEO, you have to look at it as a collective whole. And if I, my organization is growing, is my board growing in their ability? Because as the president CEO, I can't do it all. So I rely on my chair of my finance committee from my board to sit in on those meetings with staff and the third party fiscal management in times when I can't, right? So, and I check in with my board, I check in with my financial chair, but that they have a clear understanding and I, you can't be all things to all people. So how do you empower, make sure you have the staff that understands it but also that you have the board members who are sitting on those subcommittees understand it. So that when it comes to the board meeting, it's not Deanna sharing of moving the organization. Your board is reporting out, your staff is reporting out because everybody's committed and invigorated around the mission of this organization. So everyone has taken on the ownership of the organization to ensure this mission moves forward. I really like how you're 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 thinking about governance, but also how you're talking about it, right? Because I think people say, well, look, we've got great passionate folks on the board. They're really smart or they're really steeped in an area and my board is good. But what you're really highlighting is your board can and should change based on the stage of development that your organization is in. And Mm -hmm. we say this all the time and to just hear you articulate that as a leader of an organization, it's like, this is how I'm looking at governance. To me, it's just really refreshing because when you start to think about your governance structure as something that is really critical to your organization's development, you have to, you can't then say, well, it can never be changed. Like it, this is how it is. And that there's no way, particularly when you're saying we want to be brave, we want to be innovative. We want to do things that may not have been done previously. How do you do that when you've just said this one part of my organization is never, ever going to be be changed. So I really just liked how you, you, but I think it's more, I think there's a added to that too. And I shared this earlier with someone it also comes down to the leader self-evaluating, have they stayed past their expiration date, right? And that's just being honest because, you know, you hear the term sometimes where people step down and say it's time for new thoughts and new blood because I'm drained. And if I can no longer bring innovation, I no longer can be moved around new ideas. My expiration date may have just exhausted with this organization and as a professional I need to step out of the way because if I don't, I'm now going to hinder this organization and I'm going to stunt its growth and its impact. Mm -hmm. And if I believe in the mission of the organization to help liberate people, it's okay for me to say, you know what? My time has come. It's really okay. And being okay with that. 
that takes self-awareness, right? Yeah. Deanna? Like, you know, we, we talked about that earlier. That takes, right, takes a lot of self-awareness. Right? <laughs> you know, and how, how do you know? I mean, you pointed out like when you're, you're not being innovative, but how can you be that self-aware where you're saying, oh, well, I'm clearly not innovating anymore. I should step out. What, what are some indicators that folks would use to say it's time? So I think this is one of the things that we talk about with just leadership. Our leadership training is very different than any other training. Most leadership trainings focus on principles of leadership or leadership characteristics, styles, right? Our training really focuses on the principles of the internal awareness of how you show up, right? And I think for me, and I only could use myself, is the self-evaluation when ideas or the job no longer excites me or I don't have these thoughts that truly not only excite me, but when I share them with my team, if I'm no longer bringing ideas to my team or if I'm not embracing my team's ideas, right? Because part of leadership is creating a culture where everyone feels value and heard and Everyone from my operations director has ideas around how operations should work or how programs. When I start to find myself closing off those ideas of possibility or I don't bring any, it's really time for me to move out the way. I've overexhausted it and I'm more of a hindrance to the organization. And I just, I don't take jobs I don't believe in. I just don't accept assignments I don't believe in. So when I no longer feel I have anything to give, And maybe that's just part of the work I've done on myself. I just don't believe in staying past my expiration date nowhere, right? (laughs) Okay, I'm good. It may not feel good, but I'm going to go ahead and transition right? (laughs) because what's to come will be greater. But if I stay here, I'm going to make myself miserable and I'm going to make everyone else around me miserable. Yeah, I, I think it's such an important point. We talk about leadership and I think that's part of leadership, right? Being mm-hmm. able to say, I need to create space for other things to happen, right? For innovation to come into play, for us to really move at a more accelerated pace towards our goal and to be self-aware enough to say, I'm not that person, right? I'm not the person that can or should be doing that. And so I think that's actually part of leadership. And, and so thank you so much for raising it. Yes. Yeah. So Deanna, I could literally talk to you for hours, <laughs> <laughs> as you know, but I just want to say that this conversation has been just really refreshing and it reminds me why we need to have leaders in spaces where they aren't afraid to speak truth to power and they are bravely leading organizations. And this conversation is just really a reminder of that. So I want to thank you for, for oh, sharing thank everything you. you have. <laughs> um, and I want to ask you a question that I ask all of our guests to help us continue to build knowledge through books and people we should learn from or about to close us out. What book do you think we should read next or what artist do you think we should be paying attention to? So there's two. I think everyone should read 1619. And the reason I say that is because anything that's controversial shows you there's a reason people don't want us to have access to it. They don't want to keep it out of our schools, right? It's still the systemic oppression. But what I value out of 1619 is the historical aspect of understanding how Almost a lot of things that we have just inherited as generational habits, how it may have originated for us, right? And I don't think we ever had access to that. But also the fact 
that is part of our history as Black African-Americans, Black people, is part of our history that we were never been taught and that people are still fighting from us to understand it. And I think if we know the fight of our ancestors, if we know the history, the perseverance, the resilience, we can step more boldly into a space. So it's not only about the book educating us. I think the book gives an empowerment of this fight has already been fought for me. Why am I willing to cater or fall down and not just stand in my truth, my authenticity? It shows me what has truly been put into a people's or a culture's DNA of what we survived. And there's a picture, you know, you can tell I like to do stories, but there's a picture and I never thought about it. But you see these pictures of slave ships and people bunked up and chained three, four deeps. And somebody sent it to me and said, to think your ancestors survived this, somewhere down your lineage survived this trip of living in feces, living under this, being, you know, deported from their country. And today you want to give up and your trials and your struggles, but someone in your lineage survived that. They already survived the most terrifying, traumatic part. How dare us give up today because we got to sit and call philanthropy out. How dare us give up simply because we want to call out the wrongs that are going on when we have a history of people in our ancestral line that has survived the most traumatic experience a human can go through. And that's how I kind of speak today. I always be like, well, you already took my freedom. (laughs) You've taken the freedom of some of my children. Yeah, we did some actions that needed to be accountable. You've inflicted trauma and through that incarceration on my son. What can you take from me at this point? Mm -hmm. So how dare I not speak about the inhumanity and the conditions of confinement that we as a people are experiencing when we're held accountable? So how incarceration is a replication of that journey that our ancestors took. It's just all of the racial disparities and the collateral consequences It's just a new way to still say what you can't have and what you can't do in my country. We've used your criminal record, but there again, in the book, there again, understanding the criminal justice system was built off the abolishment of slavery as a way to still exploit free labor. So it's only a continuation and how dare us not fight it when our people fought to end slavery. It ain't over. We still in the middle of this fight, so we can't give up. Well, I'm, I'm, going to put all of all about 1619 in the show notes so that people can experience exactly what you're describing because it just sounds incredibly powerful and I'm sure that people are going to want to devour it right and right. more so thank you so much for sharing that mm. and seriously Deanna this conversation has been so powerful I think we again we talked about cultural competence and just really breaking down what that means and I think Throughout the conversation, talking about self-awareness, the power that it provides when you are self-aware and you step into conversations to learn. And that then leads to collaboration and then thinking about investment and how that shows up Mm. in communities, but also in, you know, organizations when we're talking about the nonprofit sector and at the end of the day, being brave enough to tell your story. So I want to thank you again so much for your time. And I think everything that you've shared will allow leaders to build their own organizations bravely. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Build Up. 
To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.